And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Pray with me. Lord God, we ask for your presence to be in this room, Lord God. Fill us, Lord Jesus. Yet not I, but Christ through me. Let me be your mouthpiece, Lord God, that I might speak your word to these people, Lord God. We long for you. May you bless the reading of your Lord, Lord Jesus. In your son's name, amen. We find ourselves today in Mark as Jesus is traveling through the region of Judea. Him and his disciples have been making their way south through Capernaum, from Capernaum on his journey all the way down to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. Now Jesus has been miraculously feeding people, healing people, preaching and teaching the word, being challenged and tested by Pharisees, foretelling his death and resurrection and being transfigured on a mountaintop. And we pick up right after Jesus was teaching expounding on his teaching to his disciples in a house about marriage and divorce. Verse 13 says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. We find parallel accounts of this in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. And Jesus tells us, and Matthew tells us that the parents were bringing the children to Jesus so that they may lay hands on them. And in Luke, we learn that they were even bringing infants to him, the Greek word brephos, which is a different word in the other ones. As an aside, I always find it fascinating why the Holy Spirit never told one gospel writer to add a similar detail or account than the other gospel writer. I understand each gospel was written for a specific audience, but the details are not necessarily the same. And this is an intriguing question. Now, I don't have an answer for it, but what I can tell you that I've found in my walk is that it makes you dig in. It makes you press hard into the word. And in turn, you ask God to reveal himself more and more to you. So back in Mark 10, we find that Jesus just preached to a crowd in verse 1. He's being tested by the Pharisees with a question about divorce. They're trying to trap him. And then Jesus and his disciples, and quite possibly others, go into a house. And the disciples ask Jesus to elaborate on this teaching, on this topic of marriage in verse 10. And just by the nature of being in a house, we know that this is a more intimate setting than being outside with a crowd. And the disciples are wrestling with this teaching because it's different. It clarifies the Mosaic Covenant. And we see in Matthew 19.10, they say to Jesus, well, if you're teaching this about marriage, then we just ought not to get married. And Jesus gently continues to teach them. And then parents start bringing the kids to Jesus so that they can lay hands on them. In my mind, the crowds outside of the house and the parents are lining up with their kids, children, infants. And as any parent can attest to, this is probably not a peaceful setting. I'm sure it was not a tranquil gathering. There's probably screaming and fighting. Infants are crying. Brothers and sisters are touching each other. People are hungry. People are tired. Some kids are sick. And here the disciples are inside trying to unpack this teaching and the parents start bringing the kids to Jesus. And verse 13 tells us how the disciple or how Jesus reacts to his disciples' rebuke. The disciples rebuke the parents for bringing them. 
And the word rebuke carries a very strong and powerful connotation. And it's the same word that's used to cast demons out. And what does Jesus respond to this rebuke? Well, in verse 14, it tells us, it says, Let the children come to me. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now the word indignant means to feel or show anger because of something unjust. And it's interesting, in all four of the Gospels, this is the only time that word is used of Jesus' emotions. It's not used towards the Pharisees, it's not used to his, describe his emotions towards those who were unjustly holding him, towards those who were mocking him and beating him. It was used towards his disciples. And why? Because the disciples were preventing people from coming to him. Jesus said, let the children come to me, for do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now listen, church, context is extremely important when reading and studying the Bible. Accordingly, we must look at how children were treated back then in the first century. And they were not treated they are now. They were not loved and revered. They had no rights, and they were often considered a burden by the society until they became of age to work. We see biblical examples of dishonoring children in Herod's killing and slaughtering of the children under two years old at Jesus' birth, which mirrored Pharaoh's killing of the children in Exodus. So you see, children were marginalized, and to read into the text that we must become like children, become innocent, become pure, become gentle, is a misinterpretation. It does violence to the text to insinuate such a thing, and we'll clarify this further, but this is important to understand. So what did Jesus say when he said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God? Well, look at verse 15, because Jesus tells us exactly what he meant. He says in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Truly I say to you, receive the kingdom of God like a child. Fourteen times in Mark's gospel, Jesus starts off a sentence by saying truly. Now if Jesus does something once, we should pay attention to it. But he uses this preamble 14 times. So let's take a moment to unpack what that means. And the Greek word in the original text is amen which is taken directly from the Hebrew word, amen. Now, we all know when you use that word, we use it to end our prayers. And in Hebrew and in the Old Testament, amen meant so be it, which is a term of complete and total agreement. It's littered all over the Old Testament. First Chronicles 16, Deuteronomy 27, amen is always placed at the end of a sentence or a statement to show acceptance, agreement, or endorsement. Jesus, however, would say amen before making a statement. Now, this is radical. It's subtle, but radical. It conveys that what has to follow has not only authority, but firsthand knowledge. When Jesus leads off with saying amen, he's saying, I know this firsthand. I created this idea. This is true. And this goes hand in hand with Jesus' claim to divinity. And when Jesus said amen before speaking, the audience knew exactly what this meant. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus is not saying we must possess any quality like a child. Not innocence, not purity, not gentleness in order to enter into his kingdom. Now church, I'm intentionally saying this boldly. 
And you may be asking, how can I say this with such authority? Now, we, remember, we came to Scripture looking at its historical context. And this is called the principle of history. You see, the Lord has intentionally revealed himself over the period of eternity through the, to the world at specific places in specific times. And, there, and that's called the principle of history. And there's another principle within hermeneutics, which is just a fancy word for the study of correct methods of interpreting the Bible. And that's the principle of harmony. And the principle of harmony tells us that the whole Bible, all of it, fits together like a 5,000-piece puzzle or like a symphony playing together perfectly to tell one truth, one complete truth that does not contradict itself. So if we must possess anything, gentleness, purity, innocence, like a child, in order to receive the kingdom, this is wrong. Because the word tells us that there is nothing we can possess on our own, nothing that can give us eternal life. We're going to turn to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in us, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Church, we were dead. What can someone who is dead possess or learn to possess? Nothing, because they are dead. And we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, among whom we all once lived. It's like the Holy Spirit's telling Paul, remind them that they were dead, all of them, everyone. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And again in verse 3, the Holy Spirit tells Paul, remind them not only were they once, not were they once alive and they're now dead, he tells us that they are by nature children's of, children of wrath. Interesting, he uses the word children. Church, we are born dead to sin and snared in a fallen world. By nature, children of wrath, we do not possess any quality. We did not possess any quality that inherently grants us, grants us entrance into his kingdom. And then come probably my two favorite words in the entire Bible in verse 4. It says, but God. The Bible is littered with this phrase. In Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah and the wild animals. Genesis 50.20, you intended to do harm, but God intended it for good. 1 Kings 5.4, but God has given me rest on every side. Psalm 73.26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. I can go on and on, but we'll continue in verse 4 through 7 in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly place, places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
But God, because of his grace and mercy, while we were dead, made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Mark 10.15 says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So if I'm saved by grace, entrance not being dependent upon me becoming pure or innocent or gentle or having any quality that a a child might have, what does Jesus mean? And now this is important because Jesus uses emphatic language, shall not enter it, shall not receive the kingdom of God. And what he's talking about is trust, dependence, and ultimately faith. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Nick, you just said, and you just explained that there's nothing I can possess on my own that gives us standing before God and to enter into his kingdom. Read Ephesians 2 with me again, 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, seated, with, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this, faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Church, this is clear. We are not saved by anything. We are saved by faith through grace not works, but even the faith is not of our own doing. This is a gift from God, and why is this? It's so that we cannot even boast about our faith. Last week, I was standing right there, and one of our friend's child, Leo, was standing right there. And he looks, and I catch his eye, and he looks at me with this wild look, and I kind of motion towards him emphatically, and he runs, and he takes off full steam, And he leaps off the stage and throws his body into the air. No backup plan. (laughs) No safety net. No fear. This is trust and faith like a child. He knew that I would catch him. Now, praise God, I did, in fact, catch him. (laughs) I was talking with Jamie Bunce's father, and we looked at each other. Like, I cannot believe that he just did that. (laughs) Church, my wife and I, we put our children to bed at night, and if they haven't fallen asleep by the time we leave their room, without fail, they look at me and they say, Daddy, Daddy, lay with me. Just lay with me a little bit longer. Why? Because they trust me. They love me. They know that my presence there just comforts them. They know that when I'm there, they're safe. Similarly, when, we, when they wake up in the morning, no matter how many times we tell them not to, they come into our room, they use the restroom, they want to be with us. Why? Why do they do that? Because they want to be around us. They love us. They trust us. They depend on us. May we be a church that strains to keep our eyes open at night because we long for fellowship with our Father. 
that we wake up in the morning, fall on our knees immediately, and like children, want to be in our Father's presence. Church, like children, we must come to God dependent with trust and faith, knowing we bring him nothing. Ephesians 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ, come to him dependent with nothing of worth to give him because of his great love for you and me. He gives us faith and life eternal through his son. His grace and his mercy never run out. Come to him like a child who without the care of a parent would die to be left on his own. Trust him like a child. Trust that doesn't make sense to the world. Throw yourself at him and he will catch you. Turn back with me to Mark 10, 15 and take out a highlighter, a pen, whatever you have. And circle the word, highlight the word receive, because this one word receive is the gospel, church. You don't earn the kingdom. You don't work to gain entrance into the kingdom. You receive the kingdom. We are two weeks post-Christmas, and I'm sure you all received a gift or two. In the same way you unwrap the present, God has a gift for you, which is his son, Jesus. And it's not wrapped in ornate paper or a pretty bow. It's wrapped in his blood, which was shed as a substitutionary atonement, his perfect life for your sins. You see, Jesus hung on a cross. He called out to his father in Mark 15, 34. It tells us that he cried out in a loud voice. A child calling out to his father. A father who has the ability to save his son. Hears his son say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the moment of his son's greatest need, God turned his back on his son. In perfect fellowship that existed before the world began for all eternity was broken. And in that moment, God put the sins of the world on his son's shoulders For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel. So that by faith in him we may be justified before God. This is the gospel. Now let me read this to you, church. Galatians 3, 23 through 26. Just sit and receive God's word. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith came be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Mark 10, 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Galatians 3, 26. Through faith in Jesus, we are all children of God. God gives us faith, and through that faith, we surrender our lives to Christ. And we become his children, and we receive his kingdom. To receive the kingdom of God like a child is to place your faith in Christ, to repent and believe this is the gospel. 
Euangelion is the Greek word for gospel from the original text. And that's where we get the word evangelism from, which simply means good news. In ancient days during war, people in a city would wait for a report back from the battlefield. And upon victory, the commander would send a runner back to the city with the report of euangelion, of the good news, the report of victory. And the person would announce it in the streets that the battle in a far-off land had been won, victory had been won. People would celebrate and cheer, but listen, church, none of the people cheering, celebrating in the streets ever picked up a sword, ever picked up a shield, dug a fighting position, were marred by the battle, had blood on their hands. That war was won with no help from anybody cheering that victory. Similarly, church, we have done no good deed, no good work, been a good enough person, given enough to charity, loved enough, been a good enough husband, been a good enough wife to have standing before God, to be justified. Conversely, now this is important, there is nothing you have done, no sin too great, no line too far crossed, nothing that would keep you from receiving his kingdom through faith in his son. And I know you're sitting in that room and I know you need to hear this and you're thinking to yourself, Nick, you don't know what I have done, but I tell you this, I know what he has done and it is greater and this is the good news. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not on your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. We just celebrated Christmas, and we read about the birth of our Savior. We read and sang about the shepherds in the field tending their flock, and all of a sudden an angel appears out of nowhere, and the glory of the Lord shone around the angel. And Luke 2.10 tells us, the angel said to him, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. In the Greek it says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you euangelion, good news. I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all people. You see, the angel was the forerunner, foretelling the people of Jesus' once and for all victory over death. The angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for your people. You see, the angel wasn't saying that the victory had already been won. It will be for all people. But God, in his sovereignty, sent the angel, sent the runner ahead, claiming victory, and bringing euangelion, bringing the gospel, bringing the good news, just like he had done throughout all of the history of time, all throughout the Bible, from the fall, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God looks at Satan and says, right after sin into the world, and he cursed the Satan, certainly. And then he said that one of a woman's offspring, a man, will defeat you. And church, now we live in a day where the angel, if he was standing right now in our presence, he'd say, I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel of great joy that is for all people. Because Christ, by living a perfect life, dying on a cross, and then rising three days later, 
That victory that you and I had no part of, but through faith in him, that victory is extended to all people. You and I, along with all of those who place our faith in him, will be cheering in the streets of his kingdom, praising him, giving him glory because of his victory over death that you and I had not a part of. Fear not, for behold, I bring you, you on Gelion, good news. I bring you the gospel, and it is for all people. Church, if you have never received the kingdom by placing your faith in Christ, if you have never surrendered your life, or if you once walked with him, but you are now far from him, today after we close in prayer, after we sing a song, while we're singing, come down, Come down to the front with nothing in your hands to offer. Come on your knees and kneel before God. Surrender your life and pray. We'll pray with you. Pray with me, church. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Lord, that um, through him we may have eternal life, Lord Jesus. I pray for the hearts in this room, Lord God. I pray that you soften the hearts. I pray that the Holy Spirit work, Lord God. Work inside the people in this room that um, we may change lives forever, Lord God. And there may be cheering in your streets right now and rejoicing over the souls being saved, Lord God. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray.